0: Last week, we went to God's Word to think about the ongoing issues we're all facing with race and justice. And we began asking, how can we as Christ followers respond? What does God tell his people to do? How must we live? Today, we're going to continue prayerfully thinking together. As we begin, I want us to hear some words from God's Word that should speak to our hearts, should frame our thoughts, should move us to action. Here's the first one. Micah 6.8 says... The Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern and humbly obey your God. God has told us how to live, and this is what he demands. See that justice is done. Let mercy be your first concern. Literally in Hebrew, love mercy. Humbly obey God. See, I'm asking God to help us as a church family Practice this, to act justly, to love mercy, to humbly walk with God. Is that your prayer for Southwinds? Here's another verse we should be putting into practice. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, and Paul is describing here the body of Christ. He said, Each person is an indispensable part of the body. And in verse 26, Paul says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part of Christ's body hurts, we all hurt. If my hand hurts, my body hurts, and so many people right now are hurting. So as the body of Christ, we hurt together, which leads right into a third verse, Romans twelve fifteen, where Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Now, I think you know this, the rejoicing part is easy. But God's word also commands us to mourn with those that mourn. And, and some of us may not be aware of this, but we have people in our church family who are mourning. You may think this is all very far from us, but it's not. We need to mourn. We need to grieve with those who are hurting. But we need to do more. We need to act, to do what we can to make a difference. And for some of us, we don't quite know how. You know, in our interconnected world, we hear so much, we see so much, we see death and tragedy from all around the world all the time. And it can become very easy for us to grow numb. We, we can be genuinely sad, even angry for a moment, and then we just find ourselves moving on. And I think part of the reason why we move on is we often feel helpless. Well, what can we do? And the truth is we will often not know what to do. But even when We don't know what to do. Here's what I believe is true for you. If you see someone attacking someone you love, what do you do? Well, you speak up. You step in. You use your power to help the person who's suffering. You do what you can to stop the injustice. God demands that his people see that justice is done. God demands that we love mercy. God demands that we humbly obey him. Today's message has two broad themes. First, why racial justice and reconciliation is critical to our mission as a church. Second, how we as a church can pursue racial justice and reconciliation as a model for the world. So, first, why is the pursuit of racial justice and reconciliation mission critical for us as a church? There's at least three reasons I briefly want to show you. First, This is mission critical for us as a church because God's purpose in salvation is the reunification of all peoples. I want to show you something in the Bible you may have never noticed before. It's a thread that goes all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Now, if you go to Genesis 11 and read it, you will see there people united in sinful rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. And we're told that the result of man's sin there was that God confused their languages and God scattered those people all around the world. So, in Genesis 11, sin resulted in division, separation, and alienation between peoples, the the scattering of languages, cultures, and ethnicities. And then in the very next chapter... Genesis 12, God comes and visits Abraham, a Middle Eastern man, and he gives him a promise. He says, Abraham, trust me, follow me, and if you do, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. That's what Genesis 12, verses two and three says. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in the flow of the narrative part of the blessing God promises is that where there has been scattering, there will be gathering. God says, I will reunify the nations. And I will do that through something that happens through Abraham's descendants down through thousands of years. You fast forward then all the way to the end of the Bible to Revelation, go to chapter 7, and you get this picture of heaven. You remember I mentioned this last week. The apostle John sees a vision. It's of an ocean of people standing before the throne of Christ. This is verse 9. This says, There before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Now, what we see here, what we see here is the Spirit was uniting what sin had divided. And what we have between the, the division of Genesis 11 and then the reunification of Revelation 7 is God's people. It's the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It's us. Go to Acts chapter 2. You know the story. Uh, In this chapter, the Holy Spirit falls on God's people. And there's this powerful moment where the Spirit enables them to experience shared language. And every scholar will tell you that what we are seeing at Pentecost is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. We see the Spirit of God uniting what sin has divided. Still in Acts, fast forward to Acts chapter 16, and, and, and you'll read the story of how God is establishing the church in the city of Philippi. And I, I told you last week, maybe you remember about the prayer that, that Jewish men prayed during this time. God, I thank you that I am not a woman or, or a slave or a Gentile. Well, in Acts 16, when the Spirit begins to save people, we see three conversion stories highlighted. We are told... That the Spirit converts a businesswoman named Lydia, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. You see what happened? The first three converts that God uh, uh, saves when He begins to build His church are, are who? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. The Spirit was uniting what sin had divided. We see this also in Acts chapter 13, when God was establishing the church at Antioch. We're given the names of five leaders, Saul and Barnabas. They were ethnic Jews living in a Greek culture. Menaean was a wealthy person of the aristocracy. Simeon was also called Niger, which means Black. And then Lucian of Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya. Now, now think about this. Of, Of the five leaders, one was from the Middle East, one from Asia, one from the Mediterranean, and one from Africa. Now, here's what's interesting. Most of these leaders don't get mentioned again. So why are we told these names and where they're from? And scholars say that the answer is obvious. In the church, like we saw last week when we studied Ephesians 2, God is out to destroy the dividing wall of hostility and to create one new people from every nation of people. So what is God's purpose through his church? Write this down. The Spirit is uniting what sin has divided. God is creating a new people all united underneath our brown-skinned Middle Eastern Savior. That's what God is doing. So number one, pursuing racial justice and reconciliation is important because it is the entire goal of salvation, to bring peoples together. Second, it's important because we grow to know God more fully through the experience of many cultures. Maybe maybe you've never thought of this before, but if you go to Revelation 21, we are told that at the end of time, God will bring in, quote, the glory of the nations marching into heaven. That's, that's verse 26. So why does God's word say that? I don't have time to develop this in depth, but think about it. If God created all peoples and if all peoples carry the image of God, then doesn't it stand to reason that every people group reveals something about the beauty and power and wisdom and love of God, especially when those people are reborn and redeemed by the blood of Christ and when the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify and restore and renew and what we often find is that different people groups, through their particular culture, they reveal different aspects of the glory of God. And so what Revelation is showing us is it takes the glory of every culture to know our God. You know, there's a phrase, a lot of us just really need to stop saying. Sometimes people say God is, God is colorblind. Well, God is not colorblind because every people and every culture, redeemed and renewed, reveals in a unique way the glory of god god's aim is never homogeneity it is always unity in diversity so the bible the bible is showing us that we may know god more deeply through the glory of many cultures worshiping serving together and then third uh, this pursuit is important because a multicultural church powerfully demonstrates The truth of the gospel to the world. In John 17, Jesus prays something incredibly important, and and seasons like the one we're going through reveal how very important it is. It's in verses 20 through 23. Jesus prays and he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus prays for future believers from every race, nation, and culture, and he prays that they may become one so that, did you see it? So that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. In other words, it's the unity of God's people that will authenticate the message Jesus came to bring to the world. Let me put it like this, and maybe you'll want to write this down. When what's divided everywhere else in the world is united in the church, it powerfully demonstrates to the watching world the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. Several years ago, a pastor of one of our nation's largest, most influential churches was retiring, and he was on a stage, and people were being interviewed, and someone asked him, if you could... Look back on your years of ministry. What is one thing you wish you could do differently? After a long pause, he said, I wish that I would have aimed for a more racially diverse church, even if it meant that our church stayed half its size. Now, people in the room were incredulous. In fact, the reporter who asked the question said, well, you, you've spent all these years preaching that we, we, we need to reach as many people as possible you know, to come to know God. How could you say what you just said? And he responded, the corporate witness of a racially united church in America would be more evangelistically effective than a numbers surge at any one congregation. Think about it from the form of a what if. What if people looked and saw black, white, Hispanic, Asian communities in our nation and and what they had to say about what they saw was Well, you know, when you walk to the streets, they're divided. And when you walk to the voting booths, they're divided. And when you walk into schools, businesses, and workplaces, they're divided. But what if there comes a day when you have to say, when you walk into the church, they're worshiping together as brothers and sisters on earth, as it is in heaven. That will powerfully demonstrate the truth of the gospel to a watching world. And I think, I think that the only conclusion we can come to as genuine followers of Jesus is this is not optional. This is not something we choose whether or not to care about. If we stand on the truth of the Bible, then we must pursue this. And so that leads us to this question. How can we as a church, to bring healing and unity, to bring reconciliation and justice? How can we pursue racial justice and reconciliation as a church? What can we do? I've been reading and I've been listening to as many people as we can. And, you know, there's really a lot more that we can do than what I'm going to share with you. But let's begin. I want to to just give you six action steps. And here's the first one. You can write this down in your notes the first thing that all of us can do is admit that racism is real. You know, I think one of the problems we face in this moment is that too many of us are too focused on saying things like, you know, it's really not as bad as you think. Or, you know, the media The media always sensationalizes and exaggerates things. You know, just because you haven't seen racism or you don't see it much, it doesn't mean it doesn't really exist and it's not bad. It is all over our world today. And it always has been, as we have said, and I think we all agree, racism is ultimately a sin problem. And if that's true, and it is, then why would we be surprised that racism is real and it occurs far more often in our sin-soaked world than we may know? You know, if you're concerned that, certain people in certain groups may be exaggerating racism, would, would you consider that you may be minimizing it for whatever reasons? I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you uh, there in your home uh, to look at this, this bottle, and, and I want you to, to say uh, out loud what this water bottle says on the label. Now, you're not here, and I can't hear you, but if you spoke you would be saying something like Kirkland purified drinking water. Now, here's the reality. I can't see that. I can't see that. I see something about how much I can get if I recycle, and then a whole lot of words much, much too small for me to read. But I'm never going to see what you see until I take the time to get around the other side of this thing, turn it, where I can see it and see it from your perspective. Do you understand that admitting racism's reality may require some of us to to walk around an issue that we may not fully understand and to seek to see from a different perspective, the perspective of our brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, maybe some of us, maybe some of us need to have some cultural humility. Maybe we need to admit that our perspective is limited, that we haven't seen, we haven't experienced everything I think that one of the biggest problems for those of us who are white is that we have a tendency to think our experience is the same as everyone else's, and that's just not true. And we need to be humble enough to admit this. Yes, progress has been made. We're not where we were, but we still have a very long way to go. Racism is still very real today, and all of us need to admit this. A second action step that we can take, quite simply, is pray. You can pray. Some people say, well, we need to do more than pray. We need to act. And yes, we do. But, but never forget, prayer is also action. Action. So don't forget to pray because because prayer is powerful. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. See, bottom line, friends, we cannot do this alone. We need help from heaven. So pray. Are you praying Pray for George Floyd's family that's grieving. Pray for the people of Minneapolis and the other cities being torn apart by violence. Pray for our leaders at every level to hear from God, to make wise decisions. Pray for justice. Pray for compassion. Pray for eyes to open. Pray. Pray for those who suffer unjustly and pray for those who protect us bravely. Pray for the victims and pray for those who serve. Pray for opportunities to use your voice and to act. Pray, pray for unity in the body of Christ. I mean, what if, what if in our generation we could see real and deep and lasting change? You know, whatever else this issue is, it is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 12 says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends friends, prayer prayer is not our last line of defense it is our first line of offense and so we pray. We believe that God works as God's people pray. There's a third action step that we need to take. And I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, some of you are not going to like this. Here it is. You can write it down. Christ followers and churches must choose being prophetic over being partisan. You know, I've told a number of you before that one of the hardest things about being a pastor in this day and in this culture is that literally everything you say gets interpreted politically. And it's about like any time a pastor mentions a compassion or a justice issue, a social issue, people automatically input a political motive. So like if I speak about compassion for women, they'll say, oh, he leans left. If I speak about compassion for the unborn, they'll say, oh, he leans right. Compassion for minorities, uh, he leans left. Compassion for first responders, leans Right. Compassion for immigrants leans left. Compassion for veterans leans right. And maybe, maybe we need to be reminded today that our primary allegiance as Christ followers is not to a red elephant or a blue donkey, but to a slain lamb. See, for many Christians in our culture, these allegiances have been, have been flipped in priority and the result for some has been reflexive, unthinking political ideologies. And the result for some others has become sinful political idolatries. See, some people who name the name of Christ are more discipled by a party than they are by God's kingdom. And and here's the problem that creates. Some people in our culture, they've stopped thinking about justice. They're only thinking about sides. Which side does this issue fall on? Whose side? And that determines whether they'll care or whether they'll speak up about something. And and what happens eventually is that a Christian who votes Democrat will, will not speak up for the lives of the unborn. That's a right issue. That's not my thing. Or a Christian who votes Republican will not speak up about racial justice because that's a, that's a left thing. That's not my thing. And we need to remember we're not primarily citizens of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. See, on these issues... Please hear me, friend. We're not called to think in terms of left and right. We're called to think in terms of right and wrong. And that means where God has spoken, we must speak. And on the issue, the issue of racial reconciliation and justice, God has spoken clearly. We saw this verse last week. I want to show it to you again. It's Galatians three twenty There is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Proverbs 31, verses eight and nine, gives us a command as God's people, listen to these words. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Dr. Tony Evans has been a a prophetic voice for many years uh, in these areas, these issues. And and he has said this, such an important statement. He said the church can either be partisan or it can be prophetic. It cannot be both. And I think we know what we must choose. Here's a fourth action step. Again, you can write this down in your message notes. Our goal must not be tolerance, but love. See, when, when issues of racism and injustice come up, some of us kind of have the reflex to say, well, well, I'm not a racist, as if that's enough. But maybe we need to be reminded in God's kingdom, the goal is not just the elimination of racism. The goal is oneness, the achievement of unity in diversity. All God's people, one. When God wants to reunite and racially reconcile the church in Acts 10, his call to Peter wasn't, Peter, stop being a racist. His call to Peter was to go and share a meal and worship with Gentiles. And what the gospel does is it's this message of mutual adoption as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. And now in Christ, we share a bloodline. And the blood that flowed from Jesus' veins has now become our primary bloodline. Because of our adoption into the family of God by the gospel, we now have the ability to all be one. Now, again, I didn't say this makes us all the same. That's not the goal. It's it's about oneness, not about sameness. And we will still have differences, glorious differences created by God. But our love for each other will overcome our differences. And through the power of the gospel, uh, that will make us all one. You see, tolerance will not tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Only love can do that. And so tolerance is not our goal. Love is. Love is. Here's a fifth action step. We must learn to elevate our third race. Now, this is not an original idea with me. This is a theological concept that's very helpful in understanding this issue. And here's what it means. When it comes to Christians and race, all of us are relating in three different ways to race. It works like this your first race is what ethnicity you are. You you may be African American or Hispanic or Asian or Anglo. Second race, that's the majority race of the culture that you are in. Your third race, well, that's who you are in Christ. And the Bible says we are being made into a new people, into a new race. Now, When you become a Christian, it does not eliminate your first race. And you are not called to assimilate to the second race of the majority culture in which you find yourself as a part of your conversion. What you are called to do is elevate your third race. And Here's what that means. When you become a Christian, the most true thing about you, your primary identity is no longer that you're from California or Mexico or the Philippines or India or Nigeria. You're not primarily Anglo or African-American or Hispanic or Asian. The most true thing about you now is you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Now for me, Personally, what, what that would mean is that my my whiteness has to be subjugated to my in Christness. And that gives me, if I do that, the ability to enter into conversations that otherwise might be uncomfortable for me. But but now I can handle them. When I hear things that might be difficult for me to hear as a white person the one who is speaking isn't attacking the core of who I am because I am primarily in Christ. I heard this from an African-American pastor, a very wise statement, and he said this. He said, what you have to understand is that I am a Christian before I am black. So when people right now are making uninformed opinions about the black community, I can handle it because I know they're not attacking the core of who I am. Whatever your ethnicity, how do you define yourself? How do you define your identity? And I just want to tell you as your pastor, I love you. If your primary identity isn't Christ follower, then something's wrong. Then something must change. Here's our final action step, number six. Number six, we must learn to listen. Listen. As I've talked to African-American members of our church family, what sometimes brings some painful grief in moments like this, they've told me, is as they're grieving and as they're asking questions, as they're angry over what has happened, they will find that someone will will either say or they'll like send a signal that they just kind of need to get over this. Sometimes someone will say to them, well, what about that? Or sometimes someone will say, but yes, you know, all lives matter. Someone will begin expressing pain or grief or anger and the response they get from the majority culture is, well, look here, here's some statistics you could see because this proves it's really not as bad as you think it is. I recently heard a godly black pastor who said this, and I quote, all too often, white Christians have a PhD in statistics and a third grade education in empathy. What we need to understand is there are some things that people like me are never going to understand, never going to get until we stop and listen, until we listen to someone who has a different story from us. You know, I've talked to a number of African American members of our family and they've told me about the talk that their parents had with them when they were growing up, maybe as early as nine or ten. And I want to tell you, it's very different than the talk I have with my parents, or the talk I have with my kids. It was the talk, it was the talk about what you must do if a policeman pulls you over. It's the talk about how you walk into a gas station. Uh, grocery store, uh, mini-mart, without people automatically assuming you're there to steal someone. And this is what I've been told. They, they, they were told by their parents, make sure you keep your eyes up. Make sure you don't put your hands in your pockets. There's all kinds of rules and protocols for protection. And some of you, you know. You know these are very normal conversations in African-American families, especially with, with young boys as they are growing up. And I want to tell you, that conversations like that have to happen should grieve us. And if, if you've never heard about them, it might be blowing your mind right now. My dad never had to have a kind of conversation like that with me. And I'm just telling you, we will never understand if we don't listen. And God's word, friend, God's word commands listening. James 1.19 says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I've been talking in recent days with some African-American pastor friends, and we're working right now and having a conversation that we can share with you. It's going to be happening this week. We're going to be sharing it soon. And it's so important that all of us in these conversations, I know it matters for me. It's so important for, for me. I, I, I know it's so important for some of you, especially, that we learn to ask questions and then just be quiet. Just listen. Don't talk. Don't explain. Don't offer answers. And be willing to ask questions that may lead to answers that make you uncomfortable. Like, questions like, How has racism impacted your life personally? See, you may find yourself in places where, where you don't know what to do, you don't know what to think. But if you're open to God's Spirit and if you stay humble, you may just see God working ways you've never experienced before. I'm urging you, I'm calling all of us, care enough. Care enough to get outside your relational comfort zone. Care enough to go there to listen. Care enough to feel someone else's pain. Southwinds, I just want to say, this is our moment. This is our moment as God's people, a family of faith gathered in this particular place. It's our moment to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Will we we obey God's word? I want to end like this. Um, uh, here's what I know. I know that for some of you, as, as you're watching what has been happening in our nation and, and even closer to home, you are deeply grieved. And, and this is something that you have been, have been fighting against and, and praying about and internally wrestling with for a long time, maybe even your entire life. And, and you might now have a tendency to look at our nation's history, to look at the state of the world and, and what you might feel is hopeless and, and defeated and just weary. There's this temptation in your spirit maybe to give up. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this passage, there's, there's 28 seasons of life, you know, seasons to live and, and die, to laugh and cry, to gather and scatter, um, to have peace and to be at war. you know there's one season you won't find in the book of Ecclesiastes? You'll never find that there's a time to quit. And what that means is that everything you're believing for, everything that the saints that went before us were praying for, all of it is on the other side of godly people of faith not giving up. Psalm 27, 13 says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Surely, surely, we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. May God, may God use us and may God use Southwinds Church to bring it to pass up there, down here, on earth as it is in heaven. Would you join me as we pray? As your heads are bowed and as your eyes are are closed, let's pray together. Let's pray with a bold faith to a God who says all things are possible. Let's take action doing whatever God tells us to do. Let's not become weary in doing good, trusting that at the proper time we will reap a harvest of good if we do do not give up. Let's act justly. Let's love mercy. Let's walk humbly with our God under the banner of the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, born of a virgin, died on a cross, raised again from the dead so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, we believe the only answer is Jesus, that our only hope is Jesus. And so, Father, help us to know Jesus Help us make him known. God, we pray that as a church family, you would empower us to make a difference in this world. Light shining into darkness, standing up for those who are unjustly abused, seeking justice, showing mercy. God, loving as we've been loved. And Lord, may the world look on and know that we're followers of Jesus by the way we love one another. May this happen. May these things come to pass in the name of, Of Jesus Christ we pray.